0: CHAPTER Three. A week passed after my return to London, without the receipt of any communication from Miss Halcombe. On the eighth day, a letter in her handwriting was placed among the other letters on my table. It announced that Sir Percival Glyde had been definitely accepted, and that the marriage was to take place, as he had originally desired, before the end of the year. In all probability, the ceremony would be performed during the last fortnight in December. Miss Fairley's twenty-first birthday was late in March. She would, therefore, by this arrangement, become Sir Percival's wife about three months before she was of age. I ought not to have been surprised. I ought not to have been sorry. But I was surprised and sorry, nevertheless." Some little disappointment caused by the unsatisfactory shortness of Miss Halcombe's letter mingled itself with these feelings and contributed its share towards upsetting my serenity for the day. In six lines, my correspondent announced the proposed marriage. In three more, she told me that Sir Percival had left Cumberland to return to his house in Hampshire, and in two concluding sentences she informed me first, that Laura was sadly in want of change and cheerful society, secondly, that she had resolved to try the effect of some such change forthwith by taking her sister away with her on a visit to certain old friends in Yorkshire. There the letter ended, without a word to explain what the circumstances were which had decided, Miss Fairley, to accept Sir Percival Glyde in one short week from the time when I had last seen her. At a later period, the cause of this sudden determination was fully explained to me. It is not my business to relate it imperfectly on hearsay evidence. The circumstances came within the personal experience of Miss Halcombe, and when her narrative succeeds mine, she will describe them, in every particular, exactly as they happened. In the meantime, the plain duty for me to perform before I, in my turn, lay down my pen and withdraw from the story, is to relate the one remaining event connected with Miss Fairley's proposed marriage in which I was concerned, namely, the drawing of the settlement. It is impossible to refer intelligibly to this document without first entering into certain particulars in relation to the bride's pecuniary affairs. "'I will try to make my explanation briefly and plainly, "'and to keep it free from professional obscurities and technicalities. "'The matter is of the utmost importance. "'I warn all readers of these lines "'that Miss Fairley's inheritance "'is a very serious part of Miss Fairley's story, "'and that Mr. Gilmore's experience in this particular "'must be their experience also, "'if they wish to understand the narratives which are yet to come.' Miss Fairley's expectations, then, were of a twofold kind, comprising her possible inheritance of real property or land when her uncle died and her absolute inheritance of personal property or money when she came of age. Let us take the land first. In the time of Miss Fairley's paternal grandfather, whom we will call Mr. Fairley, the elder, the entailed succession to the Limeridge estate stood thus. Mr. Fairley, the elder, died and left three sons, Philip, Frederick, and Arthur. As eldest son, Philip, succeeded to the estate, if he died without leaving a son, the property went to the second brother, Frederick. And if Frederick died also without leaving a son, the property went to the third brother, Arthur. As events turned out, Mr. Philip Fairley died, leaving an only daughter, the Laura of this story, "'and the estate, in consequence, went in course of law "'to the second brother, Frederick, a single man. "'The third brother, Arthur, had died many years "'before the decease of Philip, leaving a son and a daughter. "'The son, at the age of eighteen, was drowned at Oxford. "'His death left Laura, the daughter of Mr. Philip, fairly, "'presumptive heiress to the estate, "'with every chance of succeeding to it "'in the ordinary course of nature, on her uncle Frederick's death.' if the said Frederick died, without leaving male issue. Except, in the event, then, of Mr. Frederick fairly marrying and leaving an heir, the two very last things in the world that he was likely to do, his niece Laura would have the property on his death, possessing, it must be remembered, nothing more than a life interest in it. If she died single or died childless, the estate would revert to her cousin, Magdalen. "'the daughter of Mr. Arthur Fairley. "'If she married with a proper settlement, "'or, in other words, "'with the settlement I meant to make for her, "'the income from the estate, "'a good three thousand a year, "'would during her lifetime "'be at her own disposal. "'If she died before her husband, "'he would naturally expect "'to be left in the enjoyment of the income "'for his lifetime. "'If she had a son, "'that son would be the heir "'to the exclusion of her cousin Magdalen. Thus, Sir Percival's prospects in marrying Miss Fairley, so far as his wife's expectations from real property were concerned, promised him these two advantages on Mr. Frederick Fairley's death. First, the use of three thousand a year, by his wife's permission, while she lived, and in his own right, on her death, if he survived her. And secondly, the inheritance of limeridge for his son, if he had one. "'so much for the landed property "'and for the disposal of the income from it "'on the occasion of Miss Fairley's marriage. "'Thus far, no difficulty or difference of opinion "'on the lady's settlement "'was at all likely to arise "'between Sir Percival's lawyer and myself. "'The personal estate, "'or, in other words, "'the money to which Miss Fairley "'would become entitled on reaching the age of twenty-one years, "'is the next point to consider.' This part of her inheritance was, in itself, a comfortable little fortune. It was derived under her father's will, and it amounted to the sum of twenty thousand pounds. Besides this, she had a life interest in ten thousand pounds more, which latter amount was to go on her decease to her Aunt Eleanor, her father's only sister. It will greatly assist in setting the family affairs before the reader in the clearest possible light if I stop here for a moment, to explain why the aunt had been kept waiting for her legacy until the death of the niece. Mr. Philip Fairley had lived on excellent terms with his sister Eleanor, as long as she remained a single woman. But when her marriage took place somewhat late in life, and when that marriage united her to an Italian gentleman named Fosco, or rather, to an Italian nobleman seeing that he rejoiced in the title of Count, Mr. Fairley disapproved of her conduct so strongly that he ceased to hold any communication with her, and even went the length of striking her name out of his will. The other members of the family all thought this serious manifestation of resentment at his sister's marriage more or less unreasonable. Count Fosco, though not a rich man, was not a penniless adventurer either, "'He had a small but sufficient income of his own. "'He had lived many years in England, "'and he held an excellent position in society. "'These recommendations, however, "'availed nothing with Mr. Fairley. "'In many of his opinions, "'he was an Englishman of the old school, "'and he hated a foreigner simply and solely "'because he was a foreigner. "'The utmost that he could be prevailed on to do "'in after years, mainly at Miss Fairley's intercession,' was to restore his sister's name to its former place in his will, but to keep her waiting for her legacy by giving the income of the money to his daughter for life, and the money itself, if her aunt died before her, to her cousin Magdalene. Considering the relative ages of the two ladies, the aunt's chance, in the ordinary course of nature, of receiving the ten thousand pounds, was thus rendered doubtful in the extreme and Madame Fosco resented her brother's treatment of her as unjustly as usual in such cases, by refusing to see her niece, and declining to believe that Miss Fairley's intercession had ever been exerted to restore her name to Mr. Fairley's will. Such was the history of the ten thousand pounds. Here again no difficulty could arise with Sir Percival's legal adviser. The income would be at the wife's disposal, and the principal would go to her aunt or her cousin on her death. All preliminary explanations being now cleared out of the way, I come at last to the real knot of the case, to the twenty thousand pounds. This sum was absolutely Miss Fairley's own on her completing her twenty-first year, and the whole future disposition of it depended, in the first instance, on the conditions I could obtain for her in her marriage settlement. The other clauses contained in that document were of a formal kind and need not be recited here. But the clause relating to the money is too important to be passed over. A few lines will be sufficient to give the necessary abstract of it. My stipulation in regard to the twenty thousand pounds was simply this. The whole amount was to be settled so as to give the income to the lady for her life, afterwards to Sir Percival for his life, and the principal to the children of the marriage. In default of issue, the principal was to be disposed of, as the lady might by her will direct, for which purpose I reserved to her the right of making a will. The effect of these conditions may be thus summed up. If Lady Glyde died without leaving children, her half-sister, Miss Halcombe, and any other relatives or friends whom she might be anxious to benefit, "'would, on her husband's death, "'divide among them such shares of her money "'as she desired them to have. "'If, on the other hand, she died leaving children, "'then their interest, naturally and necessarily, "'superseded all other interests whatsoever. "'This was the clause, "'equal justice to all parties. "'We shall see how my proposals will met "'on the husband's side.' "'At the time when Miss Halcombe's letter reached me,' I was even more busily occupied than usual, but I contrived to make leisure for the settlement. I had drawn it and had sent it for approval to Sir Percival's solicitor in less than a week from the time when Miss Halcombe had informed me of the proposed marriage. After a lapse of two days, the document was returned to me with notes and remarks of the baronet's lawyer. His objections, in general, proved to be of the most trifling and technical kind, "'until he came to the clause relating to the twenty thousand pounds. "'Against this there were double lines drawn in red ink, "'and the following note was appended to them. "'Not admissible the principal to go to Sir Percival Glide "'in the event of his surviving Lady Glide, and there being no issue. "'That is to say, not one farthing of the twenty thousand pounds "'was to go to Miss Halcombe, or to any other relative or friend of Lady Glyde's, The whole sum, if she left no children, was to slip into the pockets of her husband. The answer I wrote to this audacious proposal was as short and sharp as I could make it. My dear sir, Miss Fairley's settlement, I maintain the clause to which you object exactly as it stands, yours truly. The rejoinder came back in a quarter of an hour, "'My dear sir, Miss Fairley's settlement, "'I maintain the red ink to which you object, "'exactly as it stands, yours truly. "'In the detestable slang of the day, "'we are now both at a deadlock, "'and nothing was left for it "'but to refer to our clients on either side. "'As matters stood my client, Miss Fairley, "'not having yet completed her twenty-first year, "'Mr. Frederick Fairley was her guardian.' I wrote by that day's post, and put the case before him exactly as it stood, not only urging every argument I could think of to induce him to maintain the clause as I had drawn it, but stating to him plainly the mercenary motive which was at the bottom of the opposition to my settlement of the twenty thousand pounds. The knowledge of Sir Percival's affairs, which I had necessarily gained when the provisions of the deed on his side were submitted in due course to my examination, had but too plainly informed me that the debts on his estate were enormous, and that his income, though nominally a large one, was virtually, for a man in his position, next to nothing. The want of ready money was the practical necessity of Sir Percival's existence, and his lawyer's note on the clause in the settlement was nothing but the frankly selfish expression of it. Mr. Fairley's answer reached me by return of post, and proved to be wandering and irrelevant in the extreme. Turned into plain English, it practically expressed itself to this effect. Would dear Gilmore be so very obliging as not to worry his friend and client about such a trifle as a remote contingency? Was it likely that a young woman of twenty-one would die before a man of forty-five, and die without children, On the other hand, in such a miserable world as this, was it possible to overestimate the value of peace and quietness? If those two heavenly blessings were offered in exchange for such an earthly trifle as a remote chance of twenty thousand pounds, was it not a fair bargain? Surely, yes. Then why not make it? I threw the letter away in disgust. Just as it had fluttered to the ground, there was a knock at my door, and Sir Percival's solicitor, Mr. Merriman, was shown in. "'There are many varieties of sharp practitioners in this world, "'but I think the hardest of all to deal with "'are the men who overreach you under the disguise of good humour. "'A fat, well-fed, smiling, friendly man of business "'is of all parties to a bargain the most hopeless to deal with. "'Mr. Merriman was one of this class.' "'And how is good Mr. Gilmore?' he began, "'all in a glow with the warmth of his own amiability. "'Glad to see you, sir, in such excellent health. "'I was passing your door, and I thought I would look in, "'in case you might have something to say to me. "'Do, now pray do let us settle this little difference of ours "'by word of mouth, if we can. "'Have you heard from your client yet?' "'Yes. Have you heard from yours?' "'My dear good sir,' "'I wish I had heard from him to any purpose. "'I wish with all my heart "'the responsibility was off my shoulders. "'But he is obstinate, "'or, let me rather say, resolute, "'and he won't take it off. "'Merriman, I leave the details to you. "'Do what you think right for my interests, "'and consider me as having personally "'withdrawn from the business "'until it is all over. "'Those were Sir Percival's words a fortnight ago, "'and all I can get him to do now "'is to repeat them.' "'I am not a hard man, Mr. Gilmore, as you know. "'Personally and privately, I do assure you, "'I should like to sponge out that note of mine at this very moment. "'But if Sir Percival won't go into the matter, "'if Sir Percival will blindly leave all his interests in my sole care, "'what course can I possibly take except the course of asserting them? "'My hands are bound, don't you see, my dear sir? "'My hands are bound.' "'You maintain your note on the clause, then, to the letter,' I said. "'Yes, deuce take it. I have no other alternative.' "'He walked to the fireplace and warmed himself, "'humming the fag end of a tune in a rich, convivial bass voice. "'What does your side say?' he went on. "'Now pray tell me. What does your side say?' "'I was ashamed to tell him. "'I attempted to gain time. Nay, I did worse.' My legal instincts got the better of me, and I even tried to bargain. Twenty thousand pounds is rather a large sum "'to be given up by the lady's friends at two days' notice,' I said. "'Very true,' replied Mr. Merriman, looking down thoughtfully at his boots. "'Properly put, sir, most properly put.' "'A compromise, recognizing the interests of the lady's family, "'as well as the interests of the husband,' "'might not, perhaps, have frightened my client quite so much,' I went on. "'Come, come, this contingency resolves itself into a matter of bargaining, after all. "'What is the least you will take?' "'The least we will take,' said Mr. Merriman, "'is nineteen thousand nine hundred and ninety-nine pounds, nineteen shillings, and eleven pence, three farthings. "'Ha-ha! Excuse me, Mr. Gilmore, I must have my little joke.' "'Little enough,' I remarked. "'The joke is just worth the odd farthing it was made for.' "'Mr. Merriman was delighted. "'He laughed over my retort till the room rang again. "'I was not so half good-humoured on my side. "'I came back to business and closed the interview. "'This is Friday,' I said. "'Give us till Tuesday next for our final answer.' "'By all means,' replied Mr. Merriman. "'Longer, my dear sir, if you like.' "'He took up his hat to go.' "'and then addressed me again. "'By the way,' he said, "'your clients in Cumberland have not heard anything more of the woman "'who wrote the anonymous letter, have they?' "'Nothing more,' I answered. "'Have you found no trace of her?' "'Not yet,' said my legal friend. "'But we don't despair. "'Sir Percival has his suspicions "'that somebody is keeping her in hiding, "'and we are having that somebody watched.' "'You mean the old woman who was with her in Cumberland?' I said. "'Quite another party, sir,' answered Mr. Merriman. "'We don't happen to have laid hands on the old woman yet. "'Our somebody is a man. "'We've got him close under our eye here in London, "'and we strongly suspect he had something to do with helping her, "'in the first instance, to escape from the asylum. "'Sir Percival wanted to question him at once, "'but I said, "'No, questioning him will only put him on his guard.' Watch him and wait. We shall see what happens. A dangerous woman to be at large, Mr. Gilmore. Nobody knows what she may do next. I wish you good morning, sir. On Tuesday next, I shall hope for the pleasure of hearing from you. He smiled amiably and went out. My mind had been rather absent during the latter part of the conversation with my legal friend. I was so anxious about the matter of the settlement that I had little attention to give to any other subject, and the moment I was left alone again, I began to think over what my next proceeding ought to be. In the case of any other client, I should have acted on my instructions, however personally distasteful to me, and have given up the point about the twenty thousand pounds on the spot. But I could not act with this businesslike indifference towards Miss Fairley, "'I had an honest feeling of affection and admiration for her. "'I remembered gratefully that her father "'had been the kindest patron and friend to me that ever man had. "'I had felt towards her while I was drawing the settlement "'as I might have felt if I had not been an old bachelor "'towards a daughter of my own, "'and I was determined to spare no personal sacrifice in her service "'and where her interests were concerned.' Writing a second time to Mr. Fairley was not to be thought of. It would only be giving him a second opportunity of slipping through my fingers. Seeing him and personally remonstrating with him might possibly be of more use. The next day was Saturday. I determined to take a return ticket and jolt mild bones down to Cumberland on the chance of persuading him to adopt the just, the independent, and the honorable course." "'it was a poor chance enough, no doubt. "'But when I had tried it, my conscience would be at ease. "'I should then have done all that a man in my position could do "'to serve the interests of my old friend's only child. "'The weather on Saturday was beautiful, a west wind and a bright sun. "'Having felt laterally a return of that fullness and oppression of the head, "'against which my doctor warned me so seriously more than two years since,' I resolved to take the opportunity of getting a little extra exercise by sending my bag on before me and walking to the terminus in Euston Square. As I came out into Holborn, a gentleman walking by rapidly stopped and spoke to me. It was Mr. Walter Hartwright. If he had not been the first to greet me, I should certainly have passed him. He was so changed that I hardly knew him again, His face looked pale and haggard, his manner was hurried and uncertain, and his dress, which I remembered as neat and gentlemanlike when I saw him at Limeridge, was so slovenly now that I should really have been ashamed of the appearance of it on one of my own clerks. "'Have you been long back from Cumberland?' he asked. "'I heard from Miss Halcombe lately. I am aware that Sir Percival Glyde's explanation has been considered satisfactory.' "'Will the marriage take place soon? "'Do you happen to know, Mr. Gilmore?' "'He spoke so fast, "'and crowded his questions together "'so strangely and confusedly "'that I could hardly follow him. "'However accidentally intimate "'he might have been with the family at Limeridge, "'I could not see that he had any right "'to expect information on their private affairs, "'and I determined to drop him, "'as easily as might be, "'on the subject of Miss Fairley's marriage.' "'Time will show, Mr. Hartwright,' I said. "'Time will show. "'I dare say, if we look out for the marriage and the papers, "'we shall not be far wrong. "'Excuse my noticing it, "'but I am sorry to see you not looking so well "'as you were when we last met.' "'A momentary nervous contraction "'quivered about his lips and eyes, "'and made me half reproach myself "'for having answered him "'in such a significantly guarded manner. "'I had no right to ask about her marriage,' "'he said bitterly, I must wait to see it in the newspapers, like other people. Yes, he went on before I could make any apologies. I have not been well lately. I am going to another country to try a change of scene and occupation. Miss Halcombe has kindly assisted me with her influence, and my testimonials have been found satisfactory. It is a long distance off, but I don't care where I go, what the climate is, or how long I am away. He looked about him while he said this, at the throng of strangers passing us by on either side, in a strange, suspicious manner, as if he thought that some of them might be watching us. "'I wish you well through it, and safe back again,' I said, and then added, so as not to keep them all together at arm's length on the subject of the Fairleys. "'I am going down to Limeridge today on business. "'Miss Halcombe and Miss Fairley are away, "'just now on a visit to some friends in Yorkshire.' His eyes brightened, and he seemed about to say something in answer, but the same momentary nervous spasm crossed his face again. He took my hand, pressed it hard, and disappeared among the crowd without saying another word. Though he was little more than a stranger to me, I waited for a moment, looking after him almost with a feeling of regret. I had gained in my profession sufficient experience of young men to know what the outward signs and tokens were of their beginning to go wrong. And when I resumed my walk to the railway, I'm sorry to say, I felt more than doubtful about Mr. Hartwright's future. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.